I used to spend a lot of time in workshops and people would enjoy this, just sharing tips and strategies and tools and, hey, you could do this and here you can do it, try that. And I think those things are important for people to know. But my perspective on the teaching process has become much more personalized, I think, than it had been in the past. And I think a lot more about not so much how we can deliver information, but how we can connect with our students on a personal level. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. This is Brad Garner. And today I'm gonna to switch chairs and be the guest. And our host today will be Mike Jones. Mike, welcome. Thanks, Brad, glad to be back. So here's the backstory. Uh, I'm working on a book focusing on what I'm calling inclusive hospitality and online teaching. The idea is that faculty can play a key role in supporting, encouraging and engaging with their students in the world of online learning. One of the things that I decided to do as an opening chapter for this book uh, is a history of distance and online learning. And I had some of the biggest surprises of my life in exploring that, that content. And so we want to talk a little bit about that today. That's awesome. So by surprises, you know, you've had quite a storied history with education and how education has come about. You've been around and in the business as distance education became a thing. I know that we've had a guest on, uh, Yang Zhao, who yes. told us some very specific things. And it looks like you took his advice. <laughs> his advice was, if you want to learn about something, write a book. And I think for me, the surprise was some of the people I discovered. And I'm guessing for our audience and for educators in general, these are names they've never heard of. And they play such a key role in what it is we do today. That's so fascinating. That was, fun. that was fun. Yeah, I love it. That's really cool. So give us just a little bit of backstory about your journey. Typically, we answer, we ask some uh, funny get to know you questions at the beginning of a podcast. We're going to switch it up just a little bit and learn a little bit more about the backstory that is Brad Garner and how online learning has woven its way through your history. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a relatively recent convert to online learning. And I will, I will admit to you, when I started doing this 10 years ago, uh, I wasn't that crazy about it. Uh, I found it very impersonal. I, I couldn't find a way to connect with students in my online courses in the same way I could do at a classroom and found it very frustrating. Uh, then a few years ago, we started doing synchronous conversations with students as part of our courses. So for example, a course I'm teaching right now is a research methods class and students are required to have two curiosity conversations with me, modeled after a book by Brian Grazer. And they have to come equipped with some questions that 
they're grappling with around the content or very often their personal questions about my my history in psychology and working with with that field. So those have changed my entirely changed my feelings about online learning because I really get to know the students well as we have those conversations and group discussions during the week and office hours, um, multiple opportunities to connect. They feel more comfortable with me and I feel like I know them better. Was there a peripety moment for you where you just like the light clicked on with online learning where you're like, oh, this, this makes a little more sense? Well, I think, I think the opportunity to do those, those conversations certainly was part of that, but it really came to a conclusion for me when a student was struggling and in the old days, if I can use that term, we would email back and forth, or maybe they'd call me on the phone. Um, that would be the conversation around this thing that they were struggling with. In this new age, if I can use that term, if, hey, let's hop on Zoom and talk about this. And we can actually have a conversation face-to-face, -face, work through the problem, and then move on. It's just a completely different dynamic. Now, you speak around the world, um, speak at conferences about teaching and learning. How has this conversion in your own life to online teaching and synchronous affected the topics that you choose when you talk outside of IW? I used to spend a lot of time in workshops, and people would enjoy this, just sharing tips and strategies and tools, and, hey, you could do this, and here you can do it, try that. And I think those things are important for people to know. But my perspective on the teaching process has become much more personalized, I think, than it had been in the past. And I think a lot more about not so much how we can deliver information, but how we can connect with our students on a personal level. I, um, I ran, ran across an article recently on another writing project that I'm doing, and the author commented that the thing that faculty want most when they're teaching a class uh, is to have their students fall in love with the subject matter, just as they have already done. And um, when I talk to faculty who primarily teach in a classroom, for example, I'm gonna be doing that next week, they're kind of restricted under normal circumstances to three hours of direct contact with their students in the classroom. So I kind of use that quote as a jumping off point to say, wouldn't you like your students to be thinking about your class throughout the entire week? Well, there are some ways you can do that by leveraging online learning. So I think it's a great, a great combo. Very cool. Well, last uh, personal question, because I know it's a tip that anyone that speaks at a conference is going to want to know. How do you get a standing ovation at a conference, Brad? <laughs> well, I guess I'll share this. And I've been doing this for probably now over 20 years. And it's worked every single time. I always open my sessions by saying that it's possible to generate a tremendous amount of energy in a room where people come for the purpose of learning. And I want to demonstrate to that to the audience. So I like them to follow my directions. They need to follow them exactly. And everybody needs to participate. 
And then I say, I'm going to count to three. And when I count to three, I want you to stand up as quickly as you can and clap your hands exactly 25 times. So I go one, two, three, and before they can kind of figure it out, they're standing up, giving me a standing ovation. <laughs> so it's just it's just a very disarming way to start a session. Connects me with the audience immediately, and the fun goes on from there. And it brings the energy of the room up. Absolutely right. <laughs> very good. Awesome. Well, let's dive into some uh, history of distance learning. So as you are doing your research, thinking about the progression from distance learning to online learning, maybe spend a little bit of time kind of describing the difference between the two and you know, where it's how we've gotten to where we are. Well, I would I separate into two, two categories. Distance learning is everything that happened before online learning, before we started using the internet. Okay. And there's a tremendous amount of research that's been done on this. And people have kind of identified different generations of distance and online learning, starting with correspondence and then moving on to radio, into television, and then to where we are today using the internet. There are also people, who, however, who've argued that those four categories aren't sufficient, that distance learning has happened for the last 50,000 years, going back to cavemen using symbols on the, on the walls to communicate primarily technical and survival issues, but communicating in that way. Uh, another one that I read um, talked about the Apostle Paul in the Bible and his strategy for communicating with these churches that are, were around in the Middle East was to send them letters. And so the argument is, that really was distance learning. He was teaching them. And in, in the Bible, if you read about those accounts, he talks about how I would rather be there with you, but I'm sending this letter. So he'd rather have them in a classroom, but instead he's going to do distance learning. I guess in some ways we're still distance learning from those ancient writings still today. Absolutely right. Absolutely. And would that be considered, I mean, it's here's the learning, now go do it? Pretty much. And I'll give you some examples as we walk through this. Okay. Um, so what I tried to do in this, in this research that I've been doing is to look at each of those categories, starting with correspondence and then radio and television, and then a little bit less on the internet, because we're going to get into that later in the book. Um, but it, again, the people that I discovered was the best part of this. That's, that's very cool. So let's begin with correspondence. If that's where it started, what's that look like? Yeah. Well, actually, it's, it's amazing to say, but distance learning started on March 20th, 1728. Wow. A guy by the name of Caleb Phillips. Uh, he, now he was a, a shorthand teacher in Boston. And he put an, advertise, he put an advertisement in the Boston Gazette asking for people who would like to learn how to do shorthand. And he opened it, as he described it, to any person in the country who wants to learn this art, you will have several lessons sent to you weekly. Now, there's not really any record of how well that did, but one can guess that in 1728, anywhere in America, 
the Postal Service was probably not existent or very reliable. <laughs> so the second occurrence of correspondence happened in Sweden. Again, an advertisement placed in a newspaper encouraging people to learn by having things sent to them in the mail. It didn't really catch until a guy named Isaac Pittman came along. Okay. Now, he lived in Great Britain in the 1800s. He actually invented what is called Pittman's shorthand. And once again, he was, was told that when he was a kid, when he was 16, his greatest enjoyment was reading the dictionary <laughs> and copying out the words that he didn't know so that he could learn how to pronounce them and their meanings. Now, we would call probably Isaac Pittman as an adolescent super nerd, <laughs> but he developed a system of shorthand. He had offices teaching his methods in London, in Australia, in South Africa, in Canada, in Japan. Uh, and in the 1840s, he decided to start offering shorthand instruction using postcards. Okay. So he would send postcards out to his students, asking them to transcribe portions of the Bible in shorthand. They would then send those postcards back to him, and he would painstakingly go through what they had written in shorthand and give them feedback and then send that postcard back. It demonstrates, I think, something that has been, you will see throughout this story, uh, and that's that the, these, these famous, not so famous, I guess, these creative people who move this along wanted to teach people at a distance. They mm -hmm. wanted to teach people that they didn't, they'd never met, that they probably would never meet. And there's also an ongoing concern about supporting and helping those students. Descriptions about Pittman talk about how much time he spent in the very smallest print you can imagine, writing on these postcards, giving his students feedback. Right. So it, it became a thing. And um, in 1858, Queen Victoria signed a charter allowing for the University of London to uh, offer correspondence courses to their students. And they were targeting those who worked full-time and those who could not afford a college education. So you think about what we, what we do in our, our shop, the people that we work with, adult learners, and very often they're folks who work full-time and can't afford to live on a college campus. Right. So again, a great start. It kind of added some level of validity to the idea. The queen said, this is a good thing. And Charles Dickens turned around and called the University of London the People's University. Because of that. Because of that move. Because of that, that's what they were trying to do. Wow. So interesting connection that the first two instances that we see at least recorded were both shorthand courses. Yes. And what were they? I'm trying to think of the year gap between them. So one didn't influence the other. About 100 years. Like. About yeah, 100 so, years have passed. Yeah, generation gone by, and another guy decided shorthand's the right thing for correspondence. Absolutely. <laughs> That's fascinating. <laughs> really interesting. And so once the university got 
approval for this distance learning. And I imagine that also opened the door to a larger audience, right? Yes. So there's an entrepreneurial spirit involved in that, in that process as well. That how do we get a bigger market? Absolutely. That's really interesting. Well, I want to, I want to tell one more story about correspondence. Oh, very good. Basically distance learning came to America in Boston. There was a woman by the name of Anna Elliott Tickner. And she started an organization that she called the society to encourage studies at home. Huh. And her purpose in doing this was expressly to introduce young women to devoting part of their day to study. And she called it the silent university. Interesting. Went on for about 20 years. And they taught a whole variety of subject, history, science, literature, uh, languages. They claimed that they served over 7,000 women through this silent university. Now, unfortunately, she died in 1896, and there really was no one to take over that role. So it, it disappeared. They decided to disband the society. But again, you have the theme of people caring about others, wanting to reach out and teach others, and using that method. They would send materials out in the mail to people and then have correspondence with them. Fascinating. Now, was that multiple topics or was this still just shorthand at that point? No, this was, these were, they were teaching actually academic subjects, history, language, literature. And was it women teaching women at that point or was it? Yes, primarily women. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Now the university that picked that up, I'm assuming was, were teaching all kinds of academics that way. Well, this actually wasn't connected with the university, this last one. This oh, society. okay. It was a separate, almost like in, in our today, we call it a nonprofit organization or an NGO, maybe. Okay. They were just a, a network of, of women who were teaching other women, primarily. All right. And so we've got a foundation of classroom training that has now moved into some distance learning through correspondence. Yep. And so where, where'd the gap jump go from moving from written communications back and forth to the radio? Well, we, you know, we had correspondence courses for almost 200 years. And then radio comes along. In 1901, Marconi sends a message across the Atlantic Ocean. Um, and the first radio transmission is complete. Um, by 1920, there were, uh, we had our first actual commercial radio station. And the 1930s and 40s, the radio became so popular that it's often referred to as the golden age of radio. Yes. And serials, comedies, uh, musical performances, it became just a, a part of the culture in many, many households sitting around the, the world. radio listening. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So a few years later, and I, I, this, I found this fascinating, WLS radio station in Chicago. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's, it's an old radio station, very powerful. I, I was not aware that WLS stands for world's largest store. Huh. 
because it was sponsored by the Sears and Roebuck company. Oh, interesting. And they decided um, to start doing education over the air and uh, created something called the Little Red Schoolhouse of the Air. And they had this host whose name was Uncle Ben Darrow. So it was probably the first um, almost like Mr. Rogers show. Yeah, yeah. Um, and reached students in Northwestern Indiana, parts of Michigan and Illinois. It's interesting, think about the COVID pandemic today and how there's this controversy over schools being open or not, online learning or not. In the 1930s, there was a polio epidemic. Uh, a Chicago radio station took it upon themselves to begin broadcasting in cooperation with the Chicago Public Schools, and they reached roughly 300,000 students. Wow. Over the radio. And they also had a, a call desk, and they would get over a thousand calls a day from students asking for help on how to do their homework. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. It's, it, again, these, these stories just kind of blew my mind. The, the other fascinating story about radio is Canada. Uh, if you think about the, how expansive Canada is, and in many ways, in, in the early days, um, largely rural. Mm -hmm. So there was a Canadian National Railroad. And the guy who was in charge of that, the president of the Canadian National Railroad, was a guy named Henry Worth Thornton. And he wanted to do something special for his riders on the train. So they equipped many of the cars on the train with headphones. And they made connections with broadcasters and transmitters across the entire country of Canada. So if you were riding on the train, you could listen to the radio, even if you were in the most rural part of Canada, moving along in that train, you could listen to the radio, just as if you were sitting in your own home. Wow. And it became so popular that the government took it over. <laughs> <laughs> they decided this is a really good thing. So they took over the Canadian National Railroad transmission system. And that's the other thing you find throughout this is um, individual inventors, creative people who have ideas, and then you have government intervention in some fashion. <laughs> yeah. Not necessarily in a good way. Yeah. Well, this kind of walk through history has been absolutely fascinating. For our guests, we're going to cut this part one off and start back again next week. So please be sure to join us. We'll be continuing our conversation with Brad Garner about the history of online learning. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, Give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.